Welcome to the NZ Everyday Investor. Now, Julian, Julian McCormack is my guest today, and he is an investment specialist with Platinum Asset Management. Platinum Asset Management is a fund manager, and you can access their funds on some platforms here in New Zealand, like InvestNow, or your financial advisor may recommend them to you. Now, Julian's been on the show a few times now, and if you've heard him share with me before, you'll know this is non-scripted, big time. I don't even bother preparing any questions or discussion points because Julian can turn what may initially seem like just a run-on sentence into a multi-dimensional journey of discovery through space and time, drawing upon economics, philosophy, psychology, and of course, investing. This episode is best listened to with a full hit of caffeine flowing through your veins, and of course, an open mind. Now, if you're newish to the podcast, there's something that you should know about the underlying message I try to deliver. It's a show about wealth. What's wealth? Well, it's about owning the right to have choices in the future, choices for you and for what's important to you. Now, investing or the practice of putting skin in a game where the odds are increasingly stacked in your favor over time can often invoke emotions in us that we mistakenly thought we've already mastered. When the rubber hits the road and your hard-earned dollars are invested, logically, you want to understand the environment in which your dollars are at play in. Now, listening to today, for example, you may think, hmm, the market's overcooked. Are we heading for a crash? To be honest, you could even think, no, this market actually has a really long way to go yet. I need to double down, perhaps. Now, if you did want to exit somewhat from the market in some way, here's the question. Where would you put your wealth? The value of cash, thanks to increasing inflationary pressures, is being eroded in your savings account. Bonds are pretty scary with interest rates looking the way they are. Property is looking a little bit more uncertain with all the new taxes and negative social sentiment. Uh, and maybe you don't understand crypto yet either. Indeed, we live in a time where no matter what you invest in, there seems to be a risk. So if you don't know if you should be in or out, whether you should stay the course or make some changes, this is where the role of an active fund manager and financial advisor can really assist. Sure, you could manage your investments yourself, and I know many of you do, with great results. But if we've transitioned into a new world, or at the very least, if some of the rules of the game are changing, perhaps there is room in the equation for someone else. Um, now, I'm not even sure if today you'll get the answers that you need to some of the questions you may have, but I do know that if you can follow along, it will certainly get you thinking about the right things. Enjoy. Welcome to the NZ Everyday Investor Podcast. In this podcast, I cover a wide range of topics ranging from passive investing, property investment, and even crypto, all designed to help everyday Kiwis build new wealth in the new world that we're heading into. I'm Darcy Ungaro, your host and financial advisor. Hopefully the content presented here gets you thinking about tools available to build wealth and the ways that you can use them effectively. Please keep in mind that none of this is financial advice. Investments or strategies discussed may not be suitable for everyone, so be sure to do your own research before acting on anything discussed today. Further information on today's show can be found by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player. Here you're going to find some show notes which will contain all relevant links relating to today's topic. The NZ Everyday Investor Podcast is hosted on the podcast.nz network and is brought to you in partnership with Hatch, who lets you put your money to work in the U.S. share market. Hope you enjoy the show. Everyday Investor, Julie McCormack. How are you? Thank you, Darcy. I'm awesome and all the better for seeing you, especially in person. Exactly. Yeah, the last time we caught up was via Zoom. 
And I think back then you were learning golfing, and now you're like a pro golfer as well, I hear, right? That's an absolute lie. That's an absolute <laughs> lie. Sometimes in my dreams I am, yep. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting dreams. I don't dream about golf in my dreams. I dream about like Whitney Houston <laughs> chasing me down the road with a cheeseburger, right? <laughs> so it's, hey, everyone has their dreams. Everyone's got a hobby. Yeah. Now, for the benefit of, of our audience, um, some of our audience will have remembered you and your voice probably in the last 12 months. We've, we've caught up twice since then. And around about this time last year and a little bit more so, we caught up and we were talking about investing in a bubble and just where we in a bubble and what would it take to prick it. And then, lo and behold, there was the, the, the mother of all pricks came along. So tell me, man, these metaphors are strange today. I shouldn't have had that extra coffee. No, no, it's working well. All right. So tell me, um, what do you do, Julian? I know Platinum, yep. right? I'm uh, full, full disclosure, I invest a little bit in Platinum, one of your yep. funds. Um, but tell us, what do you guys do? The main part is of avoid the real areas of heat. And look, one doesn't make oneself very popular by, by telling people that <clears throat> a, lot of the, a lot of the stuff people are really excited about is very very dangerous, and and it's the it's the excitement itself that's the point. And um, I would just ask people to remember that you know, you know, radio and auto stocks got crazy in the twenties. Radio and autos were very important technologies. They completely sort of transformed the twentieth century. Um, uh, you know, the internet was hugely important in 1999, mm. and it's it's developed in ways that we couldn't even imagine back then. You know, you know, we can mm. like, I, I can find my way around a city like Auckland on my phone. I mean, that's amazing. But the companies were all crap, you know, and and even the very fine businesses that actually led that market back then—Oracle, Dell, Cisco, EMC, Juniper Systems, Microsoft—they all fell like 60 to 80 percent and didn't make new highs for a decade. Like, and they're all, they were all brilliant businesses. I mean, just fantastic businesses. So there, there is this huge excitement in markets. Um, we, we've been saying for years that we're in a bubble and we still are, but the really important additional factor now is now there's emotion and now there's like the, the human element of it. So there's very, very high retail participation globally and um, very, very sort of idiosyncratic moves. So, you know, the GameStop thing or the, you know, some of the sort of um, heat and emotion around stocks. That was lacking previously and, and now it's in full force. And in full effect, yeah. In full effect. And the rise of the DIY investor who's potentially more influenced by emotions than your research and logic yeah. and strategy. And look, th look, let me not give anyone the impression I think retail investors are any better or worse than than institutional investors? I think I think many of them are much better. So that's fine. It's just that there is a distinct historical pattern around these things, and it's the other thing too is it's not that the entry of the retail investor signals the end of anything. You do you do want to sell into retail, but very slowly, and not for quite a lag. You know, the, the whole 1920s, or certainly the second half of the 1920s, I mean, that was retail participation. That was retail going crazy. It's true, yeah. yeah. The late 90s, I mean, there was very pronounced retail participation from, like, you know, 95, 96 on. Yeah, right. So, right. It can, so that lasts for quite a while. It can go for yeah. years. It yeah. can go for years. So... Because mm, um, the impression is, is that they, they usually, well, 
my suspicion was that they caught on towards the last stage. They were the last ones to the party, and they had to clean up the mess in the end. But that's not true. They actually joined. They they have in the past they, joined. They do join. They do join somewhat early. late. Yeah. Yeah. Or some some yeah. do. Yeah. 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. Okay. And you don't get. You just don't get the shoeshine boys and widows and whatever you know widows and orphans talking about stocks until very late in the piece. That's sure. that's the sort of nineteen twenties thing. But the, you know the modern equivalent would be. You know, you jump in a cab and they ask what you do and you say you work in markets and they say, oh, well, you know, they tell you all, all about their portfolio. That, that's that's an, in, an, an indicator of where you are in the cycle. Yeah. Because at the bottom, yeah. no one's talking about their portfolio. No, that's right. Well, and not even at the bottom. I mean, in the middle when everyone's, yeah. you know, when it's just boring. Yeah, it's just normal life. Yeah. It just goes up and down a little bit, but it's yeah, pretty yeah, boring. Yeah, totally. It's just boring. So now it's, you know, you're in full sort of FOMO mode and, um, there is risk around that. Yeah. Or, or put it another way, I mean, look, let's just be clear about it. We are at about the 100th percentile of market valuation in human history. So uh, put it another way, you've got negative real earnings yield, a negative real earnings yield on the US equity market so that yeah. if you invert the PE, you get an earnings yield. So a PE of 25 is going to give you an earnings yield of four. We're about 22, so it's about four and a bit. And inflation's comfortably higher than that. We printed 4.1 you know, a little bit ago. We're higher than that now. Would Correct. Be yeah, I get it. Yeah, our yeah. assumption. Yeah. Um, just from what we can see, and that means you've got a negative earnings yield on 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 the S and P. Uh, that hasn't happened in 50 years without a huge correction. Wow. So right. I don't, so I don't another, want to be gloomy. Another way to reframe that though is yeah. is that uh, the perf- the real performance of, of the share market isn't keeping pace with the, the real, the real expected return. So right. so not even the expected return, but the real earnings power yeah. of stocks is not protecting you from inflation relative to the price that's being paid. Because if the price came down, the earnings yield would go up because the yeah. earnings won't change with the price. Yeah, yeah. So so that's that's the key. Yeah. And and um, equities are a real asset. Because companies have pricing power, so they are, they are an inflation hedge. Yeah, yeah. Um, but not at the wrong price. I want to set all that out very clearly at the outset because I think where much of the commentary is is directed towards um, very exciting stories, and and that's fine. We we love exciting stories, but you know we, our biggest holding was Microsoft like ten years ago. Yeah, we we owned you know, basically the first sort of software as a service firm in history, which is PeopleSoft. I mean, great. We love great stories. Absolutely. We've owned Tencent for seven years and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But we just mustn't let ourselves get excited. And where I think a lot of commentary is about is all about disruption and technology and yada, yada. And that's all cool. But the price matters. That's right. It hasn't for a while, but, yeah, yeah, but yeah. it will. Yeah. It will. That's no, right. just based on history and just – none of this is predictive. This is not physics. Yeah. This is human physics. And Correct, humans yeah. are not – they're not as subject to predictive. And we're not rational actors. Not really. And I remember last time – well, not last time. The first time you you, you, um, you spoke with me, you said something that, that I, I'm pretty sure it was you, or I'm going to credit it to you anyway. Do it. You said uh, – most of investing comes down to one simple strategy, which is shut up and just buy cheap stocks. Yeah, that was right? me. That was you, wasn't yeah. it? I thought that was profound. Yeah. Because it kind of does set some parameters around how you make investment decisions. That's right. And and it's a funny one, though, right? Because we, we actually obsess about macro stuff. But that is because we are driven to investment decisions from the bottom up 
but we're very aware of the context in which we're operating. Yeah. And so that's just a constant recursive process. That's just a constant, you know, circular loop sure. yeah. of, I mean, are we okay here? And wow, this stuff's really cheap or that's very expensive. Should it be? And, you know, that's... It's like self-awareness, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You need to yeah. be aware of your environment, situationally aware. That's right. Because you are, you're not a function of, but you're a participant we in... Are. We are. We are a function of. We all are. Yeah. You know, we're all a function of our of our biology, and and that biology is wired to do dumb things. Yeah. <laughs> In a quantitative sense. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. So so, okay, I'll give you a quiz. I'm sorry, you didn't expect this. No, it's fine. Hey. It's questions without notice. So you know, I'll, I'll deal with it, man. But I reckon you're smart, and I reckon you'll pass. In fact, I think you'll get a distinction. So I'll give you. a Oh, well, you're buffing little, me up now. Yeah, yeah. The expectations no, no, high. I'll give you a little quiz. So what's two plus two? Four. Color of the sky. Blue. Capital of Russia. Moscow? Yep. Last one took it took you a little bit, but you, Did. you got yeah, I'm pretty starting quick. to leg. Yeah. But now, so just hold that feeling. And now what's the what's the square root of seven million? Mm. That's different. So what just happened then is different. And that's system one versus system two thought. This is a this is a Daniel Kahneman thing. Thinking, right. thinking fast and slow. Right, so and you're taking me from the linear to the exponential pretty quick in terms of these these questions, right? So yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah, it's and it's um, it's not good and bad. Like the simple answers are actually why we're a very successful species because we can process information really quickly because we're super efficient. Right. So actually, in timed contexts, the best chess is played by a machine plus a grandmaster. They they kill the machines in in compressed time frames because the computer always has to compute everything in a brute computational way from the first possible iteration to the last. It can't economize. It, they're beginning to, the neural nets are beginning to do that, but you know, not, right, not okay. very well. Even, even the AI ones. Okay. They're just way less – so, and then Kasparov will come along and he'll tell the machine, don't worry about all that crap on the side and you've got to worry about with her, the queen, you've got to worry about where she's at and, and, they'll, and they'll have intuition – and and that efficiency, that's all system one. That's all that one plus one. You know, bang. It's just bang. I just know. I gotta go look there. So why the hell do I raise all this? Mm, yeah. Why? Where are we going? Where with the this? hell are we going? Yeah. It's because the that efficiency of thought, that system one thinking, is comfortable and easy and it is efficient for our it's even efficient for our biology. Right. So it doesn't expend any energy in our body. When when we have to engage and like seven million you think, oh hang on, okay, so a thousand times a thousand is a million. Three times three is nine. So so it's gonna be a bit less than three thousand like so but that's now chewing up the DRAM, That's right, right? your CPO, yeah, yeah. Your, CPO, your overload, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so now my brain is consuming more of my blood sugar in my body, my pulse will have accelerated a tiny bit, my skin temperature will rise just a tiny bit. Because that's a that's a cost. Right, your body doesn't want that cost. Your body wants to keep you alive for your next meal, your next coupling, yeah, uh, and yeah. and just, you know, yeah. sort of hang the rest, yeah, because that's what that's what you are. That's what we are. You know, we are elementary canals with the reproductive system, right? That is not investing. That mm. is not quantitative thought. And so, when people get, you know, soaked in an idea, it becomes comfortable. And when it becomes comfortable, it becomes easy. And, they, and it works both ways. So people will know they have to own Microsoft mm. because they just know it. But it's not thinking. It's one plus one. Mm. And then when, when they're confronted with a new idea, say, hey, should you buy a Chinese property developer? They'll do the same thing but in reverse. I go, no, that's crap. I want to vomit on you. 
Mm. Because no, it's all system one. It's all one plus one. So so that's a little tangent, but that's the, like that's what we are always seeking to overcome in ourselves as investors, right? Like that's I'm not being critical of it. We're so good and they're not. I'm saying this is what we have to do. So you said before it's about self-awareness. That's the kind of thing we're always trying to be self-aware about, about yeah, yeah. what yeah. you know, what and why and how can we quantify that and you know, so really picking things apart. Yeah. And that's where we live as investors. Yeah. That's where we know we can make sustainable returns over time. And I can say that with some assurity because we've been doing it for 27 years. Yeah. And it's very difficult to express that to people in ways that don't piss them off. Yeah, that's right. Because what, what we're saying is, hey, you know all those software as a service stocks and enterprise software stocks and uh, crypto-related investments and whatever, all that stuff's probably crap as an investment proposition and you're probably there because of like an emotional reaction to the either to the hype or the potential or whatever and it could be very dangerous. It doesn't make you very popular at dinner parties, does it? No, it doesn't. No, right. it doesn't. And it's an interesting concept, interesting way of way deeper than what how I would have ever approached it. But uh, you know, even just last night, I was just just um, thinking about the concept of gambling versus investing. Yeah. When you when you approach this, and you know, there's a lot of emotion. It's chance. It's fifty fifty. It's random. Yeah. Investing, you can be a bit more calculated, and you can actually your reward is different. It's not just on or off. It's actually yeah. income and capital growth. So they're they're similar. There's some overlaps. Yeah. Specifically, the chance we don't know what the outcome is going to be. Yeah. But that was my way, probably of very very simplistically to kind of cover the same thing, sort of. But what you're basically saying is that we are simple beings in a very complex system. Yeah. And when we're making investment decisions, it's so easy just to act like a simple being yep. because we get this feedback that oh, totally. we're getting positive results. We're putting money into GameStop. Totally. I must be a genius. Totally. And the other thing too is the time-weighted experience of that mm. is by and large positive. Okay. Because markets as a mean reversion mechanism deviate from the mean slowly and revert to mean quickly. Yeah. That's what the cycle is. Mm. That's what it is. You'll start off at some lousy part of the cycle. It's 1982 or it's, you know, 2003 or it's like, like lousy, right? You're, you're at the mean or below it. Yeah. So you can make money easily. Yeah. Volatility is high because people are uncertain. Yeah. And you put money in then and then up she goes. Yeah. Up goes the market. And then as it goes up, draws in more participants. Because, oh, this is cool. That guy's making heaps of money and that lady just made a ton. So I, why am I doing that? Yeah. You know? And so what is happening there is that you're deviating from the mean, but that's a slow process. So volatility falls slowly mm. and rises quickly. Mm. And that is what the cycle is. So the time-weighted experience of that, particularly at this point or something like this point, we don't know exactly where we are, in a cycle, people have made returns for ages. Mm. They will not believe it's possible for there to be a serious setback in a Microsoft or a, or an Amazon or a Tesla because they've made money for ages and pots of it. Mm. But when that mean reverts, and we got a little taste of that in March 2000, February, March 2020, sorry, yeah. it reverts very quickly and then it's just shock. Yeah. Like, oh, God. And then you get the sort of reaction you got post 0809, post 2000, you know, post 89 in Japan, which is, ah, sod that for a game of soldiers, I'm out. Yeah. 
and then you start the cycle again. What was different then in March? Because the response was a little bit different from the powers that be in terms of injecting new cash into the system and yeah. resurrecting this Frankenstein monster. And you know, as long as the power cord isn't tripped, <laughs> exactly. we're alive, right? So yeah. what, what was what was the difference? Is, is it the fact that the intervention kind of distorted something that should happen naturally, or was this or was this separation between you know where we were at and where we needed to be back snapped into? Was that always, is that, is that kind of, is that independent of manipulation, I guess is what I'm saying. Is, was that always going to happen? It's a, it's a great question. Um, there's, there's always intervention and markets aren't natural, right? So I, I get very annoyed with sort of financy types who want to equate markets to some sort of natural force. It's, it's, it's crap. It's mm. crap. If you look at natural ways of human interaction, they're not market-based at all. I don't have to pay my dad back from a school fees, right? But now let's go yeah. and look at every single society that anthropologists and sociologists have bumped up to through time. Yeah. None of them are market-based. Yeah. True. There, there, there are markets within them. There are market-like structures. There, there's, there's exchange of value, mm. right? But so there's mm-hmm. nothing natural about this. It's, mm. it's, it or nothing, nothing free, right? So it's not – Nothing free yeah. and, and nothing, nothing un – mediated by human institutions and intervention. Correct. It's, 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 it's constantly Correct. bounded by that. Correct. Right? And, so, and yeah, you'd like to say that, hey, these, these yeah. constructs, these organizations are really actually just groups of people doing it. So isn't that a form of the market? But that's not the free market. That's some other, that's, no, that's something else. And that, yeah. and that free market thing is totally impossible without very, very serious social structures around it, mm. right? Like, because, you know, well, hang on, in a free market, like, someone's a bit bigger than me, why don't they just bonk me on the head with a stick and take my stuff? Yeah. Well, that isn't going to lead to a market society, but it's a very natural state of being. So that's a long way of preamble to your question. Yeah. Because there's always intervention, there's always something that happens, there's always, you know, risk around the response to events in markets. And, and I think people think there's some sort of natural law about it or whatever. You better not believe that. Yeah. They can change. The, you know, the, the powerful agents, be they governments or large enterprises or the in, in China's the Chinese Communist Party, they can just change the rules whenever they want. Yeah. But like one of the big risks that no one ever talks about with gold ownership, and I think it particularly applies to Bitcoin, yeah. is they can just suspend convertibility. Like that's what that's what FDR did. Stop the uh, stop the on ramps and the off ramps. Totally, that's what yeah. FDR did in thirty three. Yeah, he just said, well, he did. But this is the other thing. He he priced up the price of gold because that that gave banks back their solvency pretty quickly. He went from twenty two to thirty five. Mm. Yeah, it's actually twenty two oh six or twenty two sixty or something. It's a weird number, but and then it went to thirty five an ounce. Yeah, yeah, and that that basically recapitalized the banks. Yeah, because they had a whole stack of gold. Yeah, and then he said, and guess what? You can't sell it except you can hand it in at the bank. Basically, the Federal Reserve said. Hey, you know that legal charter under which we are created? That doesn't exist anymore. Mm. It's illegal for the Fed to buy anything except instruments backed by the full faith and credit of the US government. And they said, well, how about we just get a large fund management institution, maybe I shouldn't name, to um, establish a special purpose vehicle for us, and now we'll just buy we'll just buy corporate bonds. Yeah. They only bought LQD, which is the investment grade ETF of corporate bonds, but they said very clearly, and hey, we might go and buy, you know, J&K, which yeah. is the junk one. Yeah. So all of a sudden credit markets went, oh, okay, well, that's fine. Because that means there's an infinite amount of money that's coming in to make these good, right? So we're back to the races. So mm. the credit market didn't seize 
Mm. And that was that was the big vulnerability in the system. It's not perhaps beneath one to mention that um, Jay Powell's worth like 10 to 20 million bucks. That's all in equities. And he's a private equity guy. So he understands the value of mm. like, the junk market. It's very important for people to be able to get stuff away in the junk market. Yeah. So that's that's what happened. Yeah. And that's what and we got caught out by that because, you know, we did a very good job on the way down. Yeah. And then at the bottom we thought, my God, nothing's broken yet. Yeah, yeah. You know, you've only had like literally a couple of weeks of high spreads. Yeah. And and the corporate bond market is in very, very bad shape. There's hardly a triple A issuer in the world anymore. That used to be fifteen percent of issuers or something. Now there's basically none. Yeah. And you know, it's got this huge rump of both junk, but that's not the big bit. The really big bit is just, just investment just grade. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. A triple B. The problem being is if the triple Bs go to a don't go to a double B, most most bond investors can't own them. Well, then they're stuffed. <laughs> yeah. But not just that, then the market's stuffed. Because yeah. let me get the numbers right. I'm going to say there's. I haven't I haven't actually looked over the numbers for a little bit, so I'm going to get the numbers wrong. But there's around about. Three trillion of triple B, and about a trillion of of all junk. Yeah. So if you get a really serious event and you get like you know five hundred bill drop from triple B to junk, it'll be half the market. Yeah. And the market can't take it. Again, long way of saying I think that was very clearly understood mm. by the Fed, and the Fed reacted very quickly. And then there's another another wrinkle in that, which is. What happens in these events is it's actually the legal niceties, the legal loopholes and, and niches that prevent action quickly. Because no one has universal power in one of these market-based systems. Mm. Everything's conscribed by law. Mm. So when the Fed wanted to go and do stuff in 08, it had to establish a whole lot of legal authorities to do it. Yeah. When when um, you know, Congress wanted to pass the TARP Act and then the, uh, the Obama one, I can't remember the name of it, putting America back to work or something act. Yeah. They had to wrangle about what the hell it was and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Had to wrangle about it and it took for bloody ever. Yeah. It took like a year and a half from like, you know, the proverbial beginning to dribble onto the fan yeah, yeah. to, okay, there's a couple of really big acts of Congress passed and, and we can actually, you know, get- Do stuff and fix some stuff, yeah. In that year and a half, you do enormous damage to the economy. And that inaction is the issue, which you could almost look back at the uh, the Great Depression, and there was Precisely. inaction as well. But this Precisely. time, it was super freaking quick. This wasn't time, it? it was like within weeks because the mm. Fed went, "Yeah, cool, just sign here." Like, mm. yeah, we don't. We did this. We got this ready. We did this ten it was years ago. Bacon. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Like here's one we prepared earlier. Yeah. Um, and also, oh, well, COVID's no one's fault. That's right. True. So it wasn't a moral hazard argument because it's always a moral hazard argument that gets, well, not always, I shouldn't say that, but it is predominantly a moral hazard argument. It says, hey, you idiots, you bankers got us into this trouble. I'm not going to bail you out. Blah, 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 blah. That's all fine, but have that discussion in a couple of years. You don't have it when the system's seizing up because it ain't the banker with the $17 million house is going to be in trouble. Yeah, that's right. It, 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 it's, it's, yeah. A, it's a perverse but very natural yeah. reaction, and you, and you but can, it's you unhelpful can, at the time. And you can understand why some would say then, you know, at this juncture, you can understand why some would say, well, that was convenient, yeah, right. But what you're saying, you know, it's it's, yeah, maybe it is convenient, but it's it was possibly happening anyway, and it's a lot easier to fix a problem when it's a, it's just a, a wild it's, weather situation rather than it, a couple of drunk bankers getting carried away, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, that is what the difference was. There was no 
um, interruption or problem with the payment system. Yeah. You didn't have a banking crisis. Yeah. Didn't, it doesn't have to be a banking crisis. It can be a bond market crisis. It doesn't matter. But the, some form of cessation of the payment system, you know, yeah. money creation system. Yeah. That's what gives, gets you mm. a Great Depression. Okay. So we didn't get it. Yeah. We didn't get it. It didn't happen. Yeah. Um, that does – and now I think that is actually translating back into what's happening in markets in terms of valuation and behaviour because sort of all of a sudden we know now there's no moral hazard. So sort of all of a sudden we know now we can pay anything for stocks because we're always going to get bailed out. But that's not right. That's not right. The next one won't be COVID. Mm. So the next one you'll get some sort of problem and and it's probably not going to be anything like 08. Mm. No, it'll definitely not be anything like 08 because the banking system is absolutely rock solid. Like it is completely – like the equity base of it is crazily high and the reserving in it is massive. But it's, but people have forgotten that they needn't have a crisis to have a horrible bear market. Mm. So I grew up. My first entry into markets was just in the late nineties, and then I caught the dot uh, com two thousand dot com yeah. pop, yeah. and then I just lived through three years of bear market. Yeah, I mean, you didn't even have to check your computer. You just knew every day it would be down half a percent. Yeah, no, yeah. just knew because that's a bear market. That th- there was no. Uh, even discernible interruption to global growth. China was just hitting its straps. It was posting massive rates of nominal growth from a very low base, admittedly. The US had a very shallow recession mm. and, and that lasted for about two quarters and you had three years of bear market. The market is not the economy. Mm. They, they influence, influence each other in a reflexive way, mm. using the Soros, mm. George Soros term. You know, that, that's about the best book on finance anyone can read as a start point is The Alchemy of Finance by Soros. Please pardon the intrusion. Now, quick shout out to a partner of the NZ Everyday Investor podcast and a platform that I use to access the U.S. share market, Hatch. Now, if you click on the show notes or you visit hatch.as forward slash NZ Everyday Investor, and if you sign up for the first time, deposit $100, you're going to get a $20 credit free. That'll make your investing journey just a little bit easier. I've been using Hatch now for just over maybe 18 months. And they're awesome. Really easy to use. Check them out if investing in the U.S. is something that you'd like to make a start on. All right, let's get back to the show. So, so these things influence each other, but they're not the same. Anyway, long way of saying, markets are very expensive. We all got bailed out. We think we're all cool, but something will come along. And that something is very likely to be inflation. Yeah. Excellent introduction. You're good at this, man. You're good you're at welcome. this. You're welcome. Thank so you. I was wondering where we are going to go and how to bring it back to inflation uh, because uh, – that's, that's ultimately what I wanted to pick your brains on. But yeah, you can't really talk about it, I guess, unless you have that context. So thanks for that. So the the way that I understand it, and just jump in at any stage and take it from there, but like the, the way I understand it is that part of the side effect, part of the, the side effects that may include nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, and if, <laughs> if it persists, goes to your GP, is that the general price levels may increase over time, right? And that's what happens when you, number one, inject more currency into the system, and number two, give people a reason to spend it. And we've seen that. So take it from there. Yeah, okay. Inflation is really complicated. Milton Friedman's thing, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary, monetary phenomenon, is crap. It's not true. Mm. His monetarist economics thing lasted for about five years because everyone went, that doesn't work. Mm. So it's not that. It's a whole institutional framework that builds around the exchange value 
of things in an economy relative to themselves and each other and relative yeah. to the unit of exchange. It's hugely can we, can complicated. we go back, though, like just, just to break down you know, Milton Friedman, because this is um, the velocity of money and supply yeah. times... Yeah. Do you want to just break that down a little bit more just for our audience? Yeah, exactly. Here? So Milton yeah. Friedman's thing was basically saying, I can control inflation by controlling the amount of money in an economy. But it's it's just farcically oversimplified, right? And, and Friedmanite economists will beat me up for saying this, but at, in essence, because the velocity changes and the velocity changes based on things that are just so complicated because it's all dominated by human behaviour. So that then morphs into rational expectations, which is a sort of model that sort of persists but was particularly the Volcker era of the Fed where if we crush people's expectations of inflation, then inflation will fall. Mm. And and that worked. Um, You know, the the Volcker shock in uh, 79, 80, whatever, that worked. But in a particular way, yeah. like it, it worked by you know, basically hollowing out American in, industry and you know, you know, crushing that economy. You know, it was an effective dose of salts, but a pretty pretty unpleasant one. Yeah. Um, so so let's let me try and come back to today. Yeah. We, we we persist in this world where, hey, here's a thing. I I actually think what will have proven to be the case that we've just lived through is the sort of Reagan the Thatcher era from 80 to 2020, probably ended in about 2020. Yeah. And now we're in some other thing, Yeah, but it ain't that. And that's important. Yeah. So there's all these things on the margin that are, that are changing and breaking. Um, the gig economy is beginning to just sort of unravel on the margin. The London decision around Uber drivers, very important. Presidential support for the unionization of the Bessemer Amazon Fulfillment Center. That was, that's a big thing. Okay. It didn't get up, by the way. Okay. It didn't unionize that thing. But that's official presidential support for the reunionization of the gig economy in America. That's, that's interesting, right? It's, it's really beginning to grind at the margins. Right. And it's been coming for ages. It's been coming for ages. But the, 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 you know, these things take a long time to gather momentum and there's so much institutional power arrayed against them. Mm. But this, this fight for 15 thing, which is wanting to raise the minimum wage in the States to $15 an hour, I mean, can you believe it's not? But, you know, yeah. that, that's, that's really gathering ahead of steam. But let me step back from all of that. That whole 1980 to 2020 thing, mm. that, that's presented in a whole lot of ways. But I think the most important way is to to specify what I think is the major driver of all the stuff we're talking about, which is the share of labour remuneration to GDP reached, it, reached its all-time high in US history in 1978. <laughs> Inflation is redistributionary. Mm. It's redistributionary. Why do you think guys, usually, mm. who have the gold, want hard currency? So they get paid back in the currency that they lent. Mm. It's a power thing. It's not at all this morality thing that gets put over it. Mm. So that redistribution was arrested and reversed all the way through 80 to 2020. Mm. And then you get to 2020 and you're not quite at the low. I think you're just off the low, but you're basically at the low of all time, Mm. labor share of GDP versus capital's share of GDP. Yeah, I think I'm following you. Yeah. 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 And that's massively deflationary. Yeah, that's right. Because if a rich guy earns a buck, he ain't going to go and spend it. If a rich lady earns a buck, she ain't going to go and spend it. But if a poor family earns a buck, they spend it immediately. Correct. 
and it circulates. Correct, yeah. So that's getting to where we're getting to what, with inflation. But can you see how complicated that is? Mm. This sort of simplicity. And by the way, no central bank has a model of inflation. Mm. <laughs> if you scratch them hard enough, they'll admit it. I'm not making that up. That's, that's from you know, a last called Daniel DiMartino Booth. I think Richard Clarida admitted it. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a, there's, there's a okay. you know, the cracks are really showing. Yeah. They have general guiding principles and they sort of think that there might be kind of an inverse relationship between inflation and interest rates. Yeah. But hang on a minute. We've just gone through 40 years of falling interest rates yeah. and falling inflation. That doesn't make sense then, does it? Yeah. If you're a scientist, mm. 20 years into that process, you think, oh, <laughs> this model ain't very good because yeah. the model's crap. Crap! Don't tell too many people that. No, that's everyone needs that. to know it, right? Like it's it's re- these are much yeah. more complicated things because what what actually really, you know, you know grinds my gears, is basically people go on TV and radio, generally politicians, and and they're asked, hey, why can't we pay for that? And they say, well, you know, because, and then economics. Yeah. The answer is just economics. Yeah. That answer is always crap. The why we can't pay for that thing for a sovereign government issuing bonds in its own currency is because I don't want to. And we're talking about modern monetary theory. Yeah, it yeah. touches on that. But yeah. it is it is literally just I yeah. don't want to spend money on that. Yeah. Because when we go to war. We can spend money pretty Bang. Quick. Hey, presto, yeah. off we go. Let's just go and we'll work it out later. Correct. But also the budgeting cycle doesn't work with an amount of money at the beginning. Yeah. They have a stab at what they might have. It's always wrong. And then they go and fill in the gap. Yeah. Well, so where'd the money come from? That's right. And why am I paying taxes again? Why am I paying taxes again? The tax thing's very interesting. The tax thing's very interesting. We need the taxes because they imbue the currency with a value. Why is it that we don't all pay each other in gold or Bitcoin or something? Mm. Because I can't pay my taxes in it. Correct. And some dude is going to show up with a gun eventually. Mm-hmm. Literally. You know, yeah. eventually, like way down the line. Well, you know, yeah, who knows? Tax fraud, you go to jail. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, and also it trims inflation, but it also curbs behaviours as well, you know, mm-hmm. in a particular sense, like tobacco taxes or mm-hmm. sugar taxes or whatever. But does it, is it really the primary source that governments raise revenue to It's the to primary run? source. It's the primary source, but it's certainly not the only source. Right, yeah. Right. So it is the so, – and, and the, the really difficult to quantify thing is that the unit of exchange that we all use in a country is reflective of like the trust we all have in each other. It's actually reflective of the value that we create as a society and how we share it with each other. Mm. Currency of social cohesion. Yeah. Right? And that's a difficult concept. Yeah. But why has Colombia's currency collapsed and Australia's currency done reasonably well? We're both very resource-rich places, or Argentina, very resource-rich places, yeah. relatively well-educated places at the beginning of the 19th century yeah. relative to the rest of the world. And one currency does very well, and the others absolutely go mm. to, to pot. You have the answer for that one? Well, it's just it's yeah. it's 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 all of the above. Yeah, it's like you know corruption, true, yeah. uh, you know a, abuse of power, impunity, um, um, you, you, you know the exclusion of a whole rump of society from the productive capacity from yeah. from being able to contribute to the productive capacity of society by dint of those things. Yeah, yeah, all of those and more. Entropy, right? Yeah. Given enough time, everything, yeah. everything falls apart anyway, yeah. right? They just yeah. got there first. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, Albeit, entropy is interesting because human agency reverses entropy. 
Tell me more about that. Well, so so the whole point of entropy is things go from order to disorder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we can reorder things. Yeah. So this, this is very interesting. I, I don't yeah. know where I'm headed with that. But yeah. the point about your thing, mention of entropy, is it sort of presupposes that there's a natural order to where things will end up in human interactions, mm-hmm. and we can do whatever we want. Mm. But when, when we do do something better, is it really better? Yeah. That would be my, yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's what fair. we're getting. More orderly. Yeah. Be, yeah. You know, thing. Anyway, I don't know where to go with that. No, neither do I. It's, it's too big for, for my <laughs> feeble brain. <laughs> I doubt it. But now let's, let's, let's get back to this question at hand. Yep. Right now, quite clearly, markets are digesting whether, digesting whether or not we have inflation in the system. Yeah. Uh, well, that's, that's clear. We do. And whether or not it's transient or transitory or whatever. Correct. And we think, I think, for all of the language and words that are being used around inflation, no one's positioned for it. When you say no one's positioned for it, no one's positioned for significant sustained inflation. No way. Yeah. I mean, the energy sector can't cop a bit, mm. and that's the biggest driver of inflation. No, so wages and energy. And look, I know I get it. Like energy's a dying industry. You know, you know. Don't tell me about it. I've got heaps of money and you know stuff that is betting against energy. But yeah. hell Almighty, you've got to know that we need this stuff for another fifty years or something. Yeah. And it ain't going away. So I'm just saying that if you were really worried about inflation, you wouldn't be looking at stocks that aren't even pricing the current oil price, let alone pricing a higher oil price. Right, right. So that's one indicator. Yeah. The other is the financials. So the banking sectors, you know, the banking sector globally is, again, slightly off its lows. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like below the lows of the GSC and below the lows of the euro crisis in many cases, but off its lows of 2020. Yeah. And that is a sector that benefits from curve steepening, which yeah. would be the logical consequence of an inflationary environment. Correct. Yeah. So the whole the whole valuation of banks yep. um, kind of needs needs that, right? Yeah. And 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 I use those two sectors because they ain't small. Yeah. They are massive. Energy and and finance. Energy right? and financials are huge chunks of global market value and GDP. And it's quite clear from those indicators relative to equity markets that the market's saying, no, I, don't, I don't believe you, buddy. There ain't inflation in this system. Don't worry about it. It's going to go blip and back. Yeah. And I think that's a consequence of a sense that this inflationary and growth um, spurt is a reopening-only event. Right, right. And I think that whole discussion of inflation, I might have conveyed to you, I don't think it is that in that fiscal and institutional sense. Yeah. It's not. It's not in the sense also uh, of corporate behavior. So, you know, we talk to you know, Japanese and German and you know, US industrials and all that, and they're all saying, hey, look, mate, we, it's just never been busier. We're just flat out. Mm. You know, and, and our order book's four years ahead. Like, we can't keep up. True. Yeah. So that doesn't seem like a blip. Mm. It could be because people double order and stuff in, in, in times of shortage. So you yeah. can get order books fall out, you know, things fall out of order books, whatever. But Nothing's infallible, but, um, and and you know this reinvigoration of capex, capital spending, is happening partially as a catch-up for 2020 and COVID, but actually because of the trade war. Yeah, right, right. You know the trade war thing was really pernicious. It really yeah. caused investment to collapse because it introduced uncertainty into investment frameworks, and people just do less. So there's two parts to this, right? Like how how high will it go? How sustained will it be, right? Like, what's the magnitude and the duration of inflation? Yeah. In light of the fact that we've had 
like you said, we're at the end of some sort of era and we're in the middle of some sort of transition, perhaps, where it was incredibly deflationary and the traditional framework for manipulating that doesn't seem to be, didn't seem to ever really be working. Um, Where does that leave us today then in terms of, you know, how high it's going to get and how long it's going to last? So let me break that apart in timeframes because I I think in the immediate term, it's entirely likely that everything uh, sort of... um, economic policy and uh, you know, fiscal policy-wise is probably on balance disappointing yeah. because the easy part is saying, I'm going to spend $1.9 trillion. We'll now get it through Congress. So there's all this wrangling to go, right? Yeah. You know, so that's difficult. Mm. So, I th- you know, and also, actually, that's not a prediction. That's actually a description because just look at the US 10-year. It got to 170 about two months ago and yeah. it just – it's bumped off at once, but it cannot get through 1.7% at the US 10-year for government bonds. Yeah. Now, that's interesting because that same bond was yielding 3.2% three years ago mm. in a much lower growth environment than today. I mean, mm. hugely – like, so it, it's actually just worth reflecting on the numbers. The now cast for US GDP growth from the Atlanta Fed and the St. Louis Fed – is 8% and 10% real, and there's 4% to 6% inflation in the system. Okay. We're talking about 12 to 16% nominal growth. <laughs> and that is a quarter-on-quarter quarter annualized rate. That's not this quarter versus COVID quarter. That's this quarter versus last quarter annualized. That's how you measure GDP. Yeah, right. Massive, massive numbers. Yeah. Now, part of that's a reopening thing, whatever. There's this thing called... Apollo's arrow. I haven't read the book. The thing it describes is in all of these post-pandemic, post, um, post-war, um, post-apocalypse, post-war, yeah. war, post-famine, post yeah. environments, humans behave in a particular way. Right. Old social structures drop away. Uh, old social strictures drop away. Okay. Uh, people sort of get a bit of FOMO. There's a huge sort of reinvigoration of economies. Blah blah blah. So, you know, maybe a simple example would be, you know. Uh, you know, Germany in the 20s post-World War One. I. I mean, you know, economically they're pretty stuffed. Yeah. But hey, Berlin in the 20s was a roaring town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I mean, roaring, you know, bloody yeah. cabaret and cocaine and champagne and everything. Yeah. I mean, it's just, just incredible sort of excess and yeah. you know, hedonism. It sounds like a fine family weekend. It's family, it? Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. So, you know, that, that th- there is something in this. Mm. And it's so, so there is this efflorescence of activity, mm. and maybe that's you know, transitory or transient. Mm. Fine. Because it is odd. Yeah. Is, you can definitely say that. Yeah, Simplistically, totally. it's, it's, it's strange. Totally. And it's if a strange you look, vibe. Totally. And if you look at GDP you know, charted over time, you look at the GFC, it's a little blip, and then it yeah. goes up a little bit. But it's pretty the, – the recovery isn't, isn't as big as the blip. Yeah. The blip's deeper than the recovery is yeah. high, and then you muddle along. Yeah. This one, the, the blip is bloody deep because yeah. the economy shut. Yeah. But the – Bounce back is much higher. Yeah, yeah. And it's staying quite high. Yeah. You know, it's half-life seems to be quite long. So yeah. uh, anyway, it's, it's very interesting. I can see why people would want to believe or can, can be inclined to believe that this is uh, transient or transitory. Now, I've used those words a few times. Yeah. That's because the Fed Reserve was using inflation, the descriptor of inflation, as transient. Transient means ephem- ephemeral. It means... Um, very quick to dissolve. Mm. Transitory means non-permanent. Take me through that. Well, in the long run, we're all dead. 
Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> right? There you so, go. So yeah. everything's non-permanent. Yeah, there you go. Transitory yeah. is a different word. Yeah. And they change that word. Nice. And there ain't a word that gets changed in a Federal Reserve release or a comma that gets put anywhere without it being very carefully scrutinised. Because those are two words that may seem, may seem similar upon I, initial glance. I think glance. quite deliberately. I think quite deliberately. And also the monetary regime globally has shifted from one has shifted from independent central banking designed to um, discipline spendthrift elected officials to one that's now designed to induce spending by government sure. officials. Yeah. So they've, they've, they've shifted from a, you know, either an inflation targeting um, or an inflation cap regime um, to basically some form of inflation tolerance yeah, regime. Right. Yeah. And, and that seems like a nuance it's bloody important yeah. because it gives discretion. Correct. It's not the level that matters. It's the discretion that matters. Right. We will tolerate higher levels yes. of inflation. And here's why. Correct, yeah. Right. So, so, so then you can sort of mount an argument that because, for goodness sake, there is a 2% target rate of inflation in the States and they just printed a 4.1 yeah. and they're going to print a 6 or something. I don't, I don't know what it is, but if you look at the price series, they're up on where they were and yeah. they a 4. Yeah. So it's going to be higher than that. Yeah. So you actually need to ignore it or to give yourself some wriggle room or whatever or else you'd have to put up rates now. You'd have to mm. under their own regime, under their own self-described, right, self-imposed yeah. yep. you know, regime. So, yeah, it's different. It's different. Yeah. It, it, and, yeah. But then finally, we're not going to stay here. You know, economies cannot operate. You know, the US economy cannot operate at a 10% real growth rate. It can't. It'll, yeah. it'll fall back. But what matters is the rate to which it falls back. Yeah, yeah. So it's it, the, the delta will be down. But does it go down to a three? Well, that would be spectacular relative to expectation. Yeah, yeah. Does it go back to a negative one? That would be really disappointing. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's the question that markets are grappling with at the moment. Yeah. Our view as revealed preference in what we own yeah. is that that growth picture is way better than what people assume and when we sort of – and that's built from the bottom up because like, hey, that stock's cheap, cheap and we can see how it can grow a bit and model it out and, hey, you know, three years out we can make some pretty good money there. And so that's how we make decisions. But when we test that back against the macro, what we can see is the big sort of unpriced thing is that this obvious growth spurt is actually way longer than people think and all our corporates are telling us that. Mm. So that's interesting, right? Because mm. at the start of this conversation, I was thinking, well, where can I hide from this, right? Now I'm thinking, well, you don't really want to hide. But that's the whole idea, right? Because we don't know. We, we genuinely don't. cannot say what's going to be don't. happening, right? We don't. That's what makes us hard. Yeah. And, and then just back to that mean reversion thing. Yeah. The mean reversion is bad. It's, it feels awful. Yeah. And, and, and the correlations all go kind of to one. So everything goes down. Yeah. But it matters what you own because yeah. you don't get paid back for a zero. <laughs> that's just gone. But if you own something that, like, you know, you sort of know its balance sheet and it's got a track record and blah, 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 like, yeah. you, you're going to be okay over 10 years. Yeah, yeah. But I'm telling you, Darcy, there's a lot of zeros out there, mate. And I don't yeah. mean your fine New Zealand payment, you know, accounting company. Yeah, yeah. I mean with a Z. Yeah, yeah. So these periods happen. And by the way, it doesn't have to be cataclysm. Let, let me not present myself as chicken little because the sky might not be falling. You know, remember, remember what I said about 2000, right? 
It wasn't the end of the world. It wasn't a systemic crisis. It wasn't anything. It was just a bloody bear market. Markets mm. got ahead of itself, mm. ahead of themselves, and then they grind, ground down, ground mm. down, ground down for years. No one bloody yeah. You know, things didn't blow up. So it wasn't like you were being pushed off a cliff, or the no. market was being pushed off a cliff. It was more like almost almost Icarus, right? Or, or fatigue. Just, where, just, yeah, where just sort of just, deflated. It just, yeah. just sort of lost. Yeah. lost its mojo and collapsed under its own weight. And, yeah. and that's a much more common occurrence. That's a much right. more common occurrence in the history of markets than crisis. Yeah, right. But we've been mired in crisis for, you know, getting on for 15 years. Yeah. So it seems like you can't have anything without a bloody crisis. People can go and get a very long run of equity markets over time and, and it is an upward pointing slope. Yeah. Very reassuring. Yeah. But if you break apart the sort of 200 years that you're going to get in that – and look by decade, there's lots of decades of zero. Yeah. And I mean zero. Yeah. Remember, Japan's where it was in 95. That's right. Europe's yeah. no higher than it was in 2000. Yeah. China's no higher than when it was in 2007. Yeah. Um, equity market level, nominal. So it's not even keeping up with inflation. Yeah. I mean, nothing. The US uh, went from 1,000 points roughly on the Dow in 67 to 1,000 points roughly on the Dow in 82. 15 years of absolute zero capital gain. That is entirely possible. In fact, that's the more likely outcome than a crisis. Yeah. It's just that we all forget to think about yeah, it which it doesn't and, and that's capture right. our And that, that's why it's interest. important to remember that it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't grow wealth during those times, but it just means that if you were owning the market, you might precisely. be owning a bunch of zeros, right? Precisely, precisely. Yeah. So in that period, the, 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 that um, 60s to 80s period, Peter Lynch, who was like the great doyen of investing when I was sort of a young guy, yeah. um, he compounded like 20% a year. Yeah, yeah. Like he killed it. When when that and you know permit me the the chest beating, but in that period 2000 2004, we beat the market by 180 percent roughly. Yeah. In our international fund, like, but it wasn't just us. It was Buffett. It was GMO. Jeremy Grantham singing in London. Yeah. The Orbis guys who invest, you know, sort of have a mindset a bit like us. Yeah. Maple Brown Abbott direct domestically in Australia. Investors Mutual domestically in Australia. There are all these value yeah. mob. Yeah, yeah. Who, who've all been smashed for the last like ten years. Yeah. The main part is they avoid the heat, but the secondary part is they own things that respond pretty well to what happens afterwards. Yeah. Price-wise, by dint of being overly cheap on the way in. Yeah. So this is probably a really good um, point in our conversation to yeah, and eventually bring it into a landing, but but also active and passive, right? Are, are we potentially going to see the rebirth of active funds management or a revival of sorts because we're entering into some sort of new regime where, you know, maybe things can actually not yeah. be gamed, but maybe intellect can actually be used to achieve yeah. better than the average? Yeah, let me, let me preface the answer by saying markets can't be all passive. They, they break down. Because you know, not, there has to be price discovery. Yeah. Like big stocks, you know, expensive stocks go down and cheap stocks go up and really good companies get better. And yeah. So there has to be price discovery. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so there's a logical endpoint. No one knows where it is. But, hey, I think we're a long way along that process, yeah. um, point one. Point two, um, the emergence of passive. And when I say passive, I don't mean just ETFs because you can use ETFs actively. That's right, yeah. Just the holding of market beta, so market performance in aggregate, trying to mimic that, yeah. that as an investment 
sort of philosophy corresponds to 40 years of huge capital gain in the US equity market. When Johnny Bogle said, you know, this is a great idea, my recollection of the account of the emergence of his firm Vanguard is he had a bought deal with, you know, an underwritten deal with US banks to go and raise, I think it was 200 million bucks in like 82 and he got 12. Because everyone said, piss off, mate. I'm not doing that. Markets haven't gone up for 15 years, you, you turkey. Yeah. Why? It was because it was exactly the point when they should have done that. That's right, yeah. Remember the mean reversion thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the, yeah. the mean there was that markets had just been grinding down, 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 down in real terms. They'd gone flat, but in real terms, so inflation-adjusted terms, they'd been grinding lower and lower and lower and lower and lower and lower. And lower. So the mean mm. had to revert back up. Mm. Have to go down. Yeah, the tide was coming in. Tide was coming in. Tide was out. Now he's he recognised the tide was out. But isn't that instructive? That the reaction of professional investors at that time was, no way, not in your life. Uh, uh, see you later. Yeah. Now go forward forty years, and it's like, oh, hey, great idea, shipping in. You know, like absolutely. Yeah. All, all we need to do is economise on fees and get market beta. Yeah. Hey, mate, you might get a zero or negative for like ten years. Yeah, that's right. Like that is a very possible outcome. It's always a possible outcome because like, it might it might be a king tide. Yeah, totally. Who knows? Totally. Yeah. Totally. So, but that's the th- that's the thing, right? I think with with regardless of what that model is of understanding what's happening in our environment, it works for a season. Sometimes it's only five years. Yep. Sometimes it's forty years or fifty. Yep. It works for a season. Maybe it works for a generation or an application, but it's not something that we can hang our hat on indefinitely with hundred percent certainty because the no. world changes. We're in a dynamic, yeah, operating system, right? No, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's like the old thing about horse racing. You know, there's no system. There's no mm-hmm. there's no system that works, right? Because mm-hmm. you know. People adapt to the system. And we're in a system, you know, when we're dealing with humans, we're in a system that does recursive loops on itself because it observes itself. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, atomic particles don't observe themselves, so they don't, they just do what they do, right? Yeah. But we all observe ourselves. So, oh, hang on a minute. You know, that endowment did really well out of just having you know, passive exposure market, didn't have to pay any fees and, oh, I'll just go and do that. Yeah. So the system changes itself. And in so changing itself, in, in back to that mean reversion thing, it, it drives itself away from a mean and then it reverts. Got it. Yeah. Man, do you ever sleep or are you always thinking I about sleep, this stuff? I sleep like a baby. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You're probably exhausted <laughs> yeah, by exactly. all this thinking. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> awesome. Well, bef- before we finish up, because we do unfortunately have to finish up and yeah. uh, I always enjoy these chats. Me too. Um, what, what would you like to leave people with before we finish up? Caution. It's yeah. time for caution because no one feels that they need to be cautious. That's when you need to be most cautious. When, when brokers are jumping out of windows, go and buy some stocks. I'm not saying don't own stocks. I'm just saying no, no, the risk. So there, there, there is, and, and let me just be really mm. clear. There's, there's no point in human history you've had markets this expensive without bad outcomes. It doesn't mean there's any predictive power about that, but I'm willing to bet you a ham sandwich on that. I'm hungry. Yeah. <laughs> in the meantime, then, if one was to take that advice on board though, what's the alternative? Well, the interesting thing, look, the first point is go and get advice, like get a coach. If there's any part of your life that you take seriously, get a coach. That's right, right. that's right. I've I've used the Rafael Nadal thing, I'll use it again. Rafael Nadal knows more about tennis than most people in the world combined. Yeah, he's won 13 majors or whatever whatever it is. But he has a coach. Hmm. It's not, 
it's not the knowing that matters. It's not the being a clever dick that matters. It's it's the it's the accountability, it's the it's the scrutiny, mm. it's the it's the practice. It's about the investor, not the investment. Exactly. Like what are you doing? Why are you doing it? Have you thought about this? That's what matters. Mm. Right? So point one. Point two is just um, I cannot tell you what caution means relative to your lifestyle and requirements, but exercise it for God's sake. Mm. Know that years of negative return are possible. Mm. Like, I mean, years, plural, of negative return Mm. are possible. Mm. And it could be said likely. It could be said likely. Now, I don't know that, but we shall see. That's the thing, right? Like, yeah. you know, no matter how smart we think we are, it's, it doesn't get doesn't. That's not a proxy for knowing the future. No, and 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 I I I just remind people that the universe doesn't work like clockwork. It just doesn't. Mm. Right? Whole swathes of things are just subject to probability. Yeah. And and so we must be humble. Yeah. You know, it, maybe you can build a better mousetrap, but maybe you've got the best mousetrap you can, and yeah. you still ain't gonna know. Yeah. yeah so yeah. just be humble as big. Yeah. Big, big part of that. So, so that means, you know, counter to my own advice, right? If I'm saying be cautious, well, I mean, just take that with a grain of salt and do what you want to do, right? Like I, whatever. Yeah. My mindset is very, very cautious. Yeah. Cautious, get advice, be humble. Yep. 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 And, and ready yourself for when you actually have to act. Yeah. So March, 2020 was in, in, in fact, it was really interesting because I didn't really capitalize on this myself. I was, you know, on TV, in the press, whatever, saying to people about March 20, <clears throat> bottoming is a process. Mm. You are going to feel like vomiting mm. to put money into this market because you know it can be down 8% tomorrow because it was down 8% last night, yeah. one of the biggest moves in history of markets. Yeah. But it's a process. So just eke it in over time yeah. and then 10 years out, you'll be happy you did yeah. because you know, 40% downturns in the local market, yeah. you know, 30-odd in Aussies and Kiwis globally. That's a big move yeah. and big moves – are always a good chance. Yeah. So don't try and pick the bottom. Yeah. Just know it's a process. Yeah. Just try and try and you know, awesome. loop it in. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Thanks very much, Julian. Really appreciate that. My great pleasure always. Great All to right. see you. Good man. Cheers. Thank you Same very much. You. Thank you very much, Julian McCormack. Now, um, I just want to go on a bit of a rambling journey. So if you don't like these rambling journeys, then feel free to check out. I won't be offended. Otherwise, um, I want to talk a little bit more about inflation and interest rates and a couple other random things. So is inflation coming? We've been talking about this for probably 12 months now. (laughs) Really, will it be temporary when it comes or will it be permanent? And right now, it looks like we're seeing the early stages of it. But if it's temporary, then we have a problem because perhaps there's never going to be a reason to increase interest rates again. If inflation actually doesn't happen as a result of all of this intervention, then that means that things just aren't really effective. And if that's the case, then it means interest rates can't rise. And if interest rates can't increase, well, that's a little less conventional therapeutics now used to treat an overheating economy. If low interest rates but higher prices take up residence in our future, then things are going to get pretty interesting. Higher interest rates must surely be the result. But then again, those were the rules of yesterday. Could it be that this time inflation may persist for far longer? From what I can see here, inflation or higher inflation treated with higher interest rates could kill a lot of the recovery that we're told that we're experiencing. Higher interest rates would certainly kill the equity and property markets, though, as well, I would think. It would be easy here to blame the Reserve Bank 
but I'm not sure what other conventional tools they could actually use with precision here. There is one pretty unconventional tool I believe the Reserve Bank could bring out here, and I'd be blown away if they've been managing to keep this one a surprise. That's right, take one part decentralized, democratized, and finite money system that exists a la Bitcoin, and add another equal part of a centralized, undemocratically elected body issuing an unlimited amount of currency, and there you have it, a central bank-issued digital currency. I would have speculated around this a few times now, so this probably isn't new to you, but I think the case is growing for a significant intervention in the monetary system by the world's various monetary authorities through that sort of thing, digital currencies. Now, as you know, our currency is already pretty much digital, but it's dumb, it's not programmable. A central bank digital currency, or CBDC, could be programmed to expire over time. It could be programmed with higher levels of taxation on higher income earners. It could incentivize spending in ways that can control not only the economy, but it could also potentially assist in controlling your foolish and wayward tendencies towards freedom. What do you think? Pretty far-fetched? Sounds like a bit of a conspiracy theory? It does actually seem a lot like a, uh, a bit of a tinfoil hatish experience to me. So, yep, feel free to chuck that one into the box along with all the other stubborn theories that just won't seem to go away. Now, if something did occur like this, which, yes, is pushing the boat out a little bit to say that it would, it would have to be coordinated to pretty much occur at the same time across the world, I would imagine. So we're talking about something pretty extreme. Anyway, I digress. So back to today, one of the topics that I'll be exploring a little bit more in coming weeks is trying to understand if a crash is indeed coming. And I doubt that it's going to be possible to predict the timing. You know, it could be years and years away. But I'm just interested in the views of others here of what some of the conditions or triggers could be. Now, after listening into today, though, I hope you're not thinking you should cash up and head for the hills. I think the main thrust of uh, Julian's message here today was to simply exercise caution. And if we have transitioned, though, after, say, 40-odd years into something that's new, something that's different, how would you change your investment portfolio? Would you or should you even change it? And this is where I'm going. I'm not sure how you feel you're tracking towards your investment goals, but I'd suggest you may feel pretty good if you're a self-directed investor. The market has made us all look like you know, amazing investors in the last 12 months. But I'd like to suggest that if you feel like you're not sure how or why you've done well, and if you're not sure your strategy is really the right one for who you are, it's potentially a good time to get some advice. The advice I'm suggesting isn't around investing here or investing there, though, but it's advice around your goals and, most importantly, the reason why you're investing. I think older generations or those who have a lot of wealth to manage may still think financial advice is about solutions. It's about portfolios and it's just about investments. But increasingly, what advice really is, is being defined by a new generation of self-directed investors themselves, not an industry. Anyway, I'm going to suggest you should very much consider getting personalized financial advice here. Get in contact with an advisor, tee up a time to have a chat around what you're up to, especially if you've never done it before. And I'm convinced that the right words, the right time, delivered in the right way, will hopefully grow some more wealth. So there you go. Thanks for bearing with me there, and I hope you enjoyed the show today. Catch you next time. Thanks for listening in to the NZ Everyday Investor Podcast, a show that's about helping you, the everyday Kiwi, build wealth. To learn more about the show, please visit nzeverydayinvestor.com or visit your show notes on your podcast player. 
There, you can find out how to make contact, sign up to our newsletter, and check out previous episodes. We're on a mission to increase wealth for everyday Kiwis. If you'd like to support what we do, then there's a few things that you can do. Write a review on whatever platform you're listening to this on. Share episodes with your friends or support us financially on Patreon. Before we finish up, just another reminder that what was discussed today is for educational purposes only. Ideally, before acting on anything covered here, please contact your trusted financial advisor or do your own research. Hope you enjoyed today's episode and we'll catch you next time around.